Well, good morning. Names that might sound familiar to you. Apollo, Artemis, Athena, Hades, Poseidon, Zeus. These are names of well-known gods in Greek mythology. The gods were known by their characteristics. Love, beauty, wisdom, fertility, war, thunder. Most Greek gods had similar characteristics as human beings, male and female. They were portrayed as these strong, vicious, uh, immortal beings who held special powers. The gods could exercise their powers on one another and on human beings, and that's what they often did. For example, Zeus, the king of the gods, according to Greek, Greek mythology, carried his favorite weapon, the thunderbolt. And when it rained and then when there was thunder, the ancient Greeks believed that Zeus was venting his anger. But you also have heroes in the ancient world, in antiquity. Here, think of Hercules, one of the most famous heroes, known to be the world's strongest man at the time in the stories of Homer. Hercules was the illegitimate son of a mortal woman, Hera, and, her, and Zeus. He is known for slaying his own family, thinking that they were wild beasts, deceived by his mother. And this is what you often find in these epic stories in the ancient world. Greek, Roman, or Nordic, the gods, the goddesses, and heroes of antiquity displaying and demonstrating their power, their will, their strength, over other gods and even human beings. There was very little room for compassion. No. Because that would have communicated weakness and mortality. The gods were always upheld as immortal and brute strength. Now contrast that. Contrast that with what we read and learn about the God of the Bible we will find a radical difference between the two, between the God of Scripture and the God of ancient lore. Although we read of a God of great strength and power who departs the Red Sea, a God of justice, a God of great strength, we also learn more about this God. We learn that this God is a compassionate God, a merciful God, not reluctant to reveal a side of him that might have looked weak. No. For that is essentially who God is. A God who is compassionate. A God who is merciful. A God who is, by definition, love. The scriptures tell us explicitly that God is love. 1 John chapter 4. And this love is sacrificial love. It's a love that is embodied in human time, in human place, in Jesus Christ. Love is displayed on a wooden cross. It no longer is an abstract theory. It no longer becomes myth or lore. No, it is displayed before flesh, before human eyes, before human hearts. 
Yes, at the expense of mockery, at the expense of pain, at the expense of judgment. But that's the great length the God that we know is willing to pay to demonstrate and communicate his love. I don't know if we truly understand and appreciate how novel this was in the ancient world. The concept of compassion. This was a foreign eye, a foreign idea in antiquity. It's so rare, it's hard to believe anyone would have ever made it up. But this wasn't something that only took place as a later development in history in the first century, in the time of the New Testament. No. We find this in the Old Testament as well. In fact, we see this characteristic of God in the very few early pages of Scripture. A God who covers Adam and Eve with animal skins when they stand there naked, ashamed, and guilty. A God who spares and defends the life of a murderous brother Cain, placing a protective mark on his body, declaring if anyone harms him, they will pay sevenfold. A God who desperately loves, forgive me, a God who despite regretting that he made man on earth to the point of grieving in his heart and plots to wipe out the human race is willing nevertheless to preserve humanity through this one righteous man, Noah, and his family and starting all over again. A God who selects a man named Abraham and promises that through his family and offspring, that the, hu the entire human race, despite knowing that they will un be fa unfaithful throughout history, bless and undo the sin of Adam. A God who frees his people for 400 years of slavery in Egypt, using his instrument Moses, punishing the oppressors with plagues and the drowning at the Red Sea. A God who despite hearing the complaints and the, uh, the, 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 the complaints and disgruntlement of a freed people provides manna from heaven for over 40 years and leads them into a promised land made of milk and honey. And finally, a God who protects his people from foreign nations despite them regularly forsaking him for other gods. Even after permitting these foreign, permitting these foreign nations to destroy their temple, take over their land, and force them into exile, he preserves a remnant and allows them to return into their land, rebuild their temple, and offer their sacrifices. Yes, time and time again, even in the Old Testament, we see a compassionate God, a God who defends, a God who provides, a God who blesses. Yes, a God who is compassionate, seeing their distress and hearing their cries, having pity over their circumstances, mercifully coming to their rescue and delivering them from their misfortunes. And this is the great continuity we find in the Old and in the New, between the Old and the New Testaments. Like I often say, there's nothing old about the Old Testament and there's nothing new about the New Testament. The God who became flesh in Jesus Christ is picking up right where his father left. 
in today's gospel reading, there's three instances where you see this compassionate God manifest. Verse 31, and he said to them, come away by yourself to a desert place and rest a while. Before them asking, he knew their need. They were working for the kingdom, if you will. They were out there preaching the gospel, healing the sick, casting out demons. They've returned, and knowing that they need rest, he tells them before they ask, come with me and find your rest. You need it. Second, verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He sees, he knows that the religious leaders of the day, the scribes and the Pharisees, had failed to lead these people, both in truth and their physical needs, their spiritual and physical needs. Without them asking, he knew, and he taught them. He provided for them food that comes from the mouth of God. And then later, in verse 37, you give them something to eat. He recognizes that they are hungry, that they've been out here listening to him preach and teach for a long period of time. And so this God in Jesus Christ asks his disciples to provide. They think he's out of his mind. It's impossible with how little they have. Remember, he sent them out just recently with no food, no money, no bags. How are we supposed to provide for all these people? 5,000, not including women or children. So what does he do? The God that spoke to him at his baptism, you are my beloved son. He now speaks to his father in the wilderness. And that language of the wilderness, where he drew the people in the Greek, eronos, would have been a very easy word to pick up in Jesus' er, first original audience and readers and hearers. Because that, that word of the wilderness would have echoed the Old Testament story and event of Moses being used by God to deliver them in the wilderness and to provide for them the manna from heaven. So what you see here in Jesus' ministry at this point is that Jesus becomes a new Moses, a new Exodus. This story here is a recapitulation of an Old Testament event. But what is God doing? Why is he doing this? Because he's revealing that he is a God of compassion. That God has not forsaken his people. That he has come. That he has come to free his people from the great tyrant, sin. And its weapon, death. And here he is calling all people to him in a, in a desolate place. And think about it. That's probably the place where God is most open to be heard. It's in times and places when we are in a wilderness, isn't it? When we actually see the hand of God. When we're actually open to seek him. It's when we're in a dark and desolate place. When we are more reluctant to seek after him. When things are going fine. 
where we're on that promised land of milk and honey, very, very easy to forsake a God, as you see throughout history, the history of Israel. But when we're in need, the God of heaven and earth comes to our rescue. This is the God that we worship. A God who comes to us, who is compassionate, knows our needs before we even ask him. Has God forsaken you? No. God will not forsake his people. He will actually come to them before they even know they need him. I don't know what situation you find yourself in today, what circumstance you find yourself in today. But know that the God who has a long history, both in the old and the new, of providing, will provide. He knows your needs before you even know you need them. Think about how often, look back throughout your life, if this is true, you might have been possibly in a divorce. You might have been in the hospital with a physical ailment. You might have had to say goodbye to a loved one. You might have lost a family member. You might have lost your job. Somehow the Lord came and surrounded you with his presence, with people. And here you are today. Somehow you are on your two feet. You have persevered. How has that happened? It's because the God of our, the God of heaven and earth, your maker, has not forsaken you. He was there every moment of your life especially in those moments of the wilderness. And he delivered you. Now, that doesn't mean there was no pain. That doesn't mean there was no suffering. No. It means that he came alongside of you and led you as a pillar of cloud by day and a clear pillar of fire at night. He fought those battles before you. He was there to comfort you. Even when we even when we were not close to him. Somehow God, because of his great love for us, for some reason, chooses to continue to come to us even when we say no. What is God saying to you this morning? Is he reminding you that he was there at that 11th hour, when nobody else was there, whether in your home, in your car, in the hospital, at that park, on the sidewalk, when you were by yourself, when you were weeping, when you were crying out, and nobody picked up your phone, answered that text, comfort you with words that you needed to hear, affirm you, strengthen you, serve you. That God was there. Trust me, he was there. I say this because he was there in the Old Testament. He was there in the New Testament. And he's here now. Because our God is a compassionate God. Now there's a key word in here that if you read in the English, you'll miss it. You must read it in the Greek. He says when he asked the disciples to gather groups so then they can be fed. The word there in Greek is symposia. It's the same word in Greek that is used to illustrate a banquet. 
Now, it's very interesting that the event prior to this one, which we didn't read, is when you have Herod, the king, who holds a banquet. And there, there's a meal. But there, you have something radically different than this king. There, you don't have a compassionate God. You don't have a compassionate king. You have a merciless, uncompassionate, one who kills a righteous man and places him on a platter. Listening to the voices in his presence. Contrast that with the true king, a compassionate king, who sees the people hungry, who doesn't listen to his disciples, but provides. Do you see the contrast between the two kings, between one kingdom and the other? And that's what our world is often. There will be individuals. They could be presidents, they could be kings, prime ministers, politicians. But there's only one true king who is truly compassionate, who looks at the welfare and for the well-being of all people. Because this God doesn't care if you're a Jew or a Gentile. He doesn't care if you're righteous or unrighteous. He will provide. And that's the God we worship. And that's what makes Jesus so unique. What do we learn from this? I end with two things. Can you think of a time that Jesus asked for something and it was given to him? Think of a time when Jesus was in need and he petitioned his fellow disciples or the society at large. Did they grant him his request? I think of the one time on the cross. Jesus said, I thirst. And what did they give him? Sour, vinegar wine, dipped in gall, hyssop. Imagine the God who provides before we even ask is mocked and left desolate when he's dying on our behalf. Imagine the great love of God willing to pay the price even stationed to a cross. You can say that the Romans sought to intoxicate people on the cross so they would be able to bear the pain. And that was a form of grace. I'm sorry. I disagree. But that's the God that we worship. What do we learn from that? We too must be compassionate as Jesus was compassionate. We must see before things actually take place or people ask. And we should not expect 
to be rewarded equally in return. Your compassion doesn't guarantee that the person or persons you are being compassionate to will return that favor towards you. But that doesn't matter. We must be obedient to the Father's will as Jesus was obedient to the Father's will. They didn't give him bread from manna. They didn't give him water to drink. They gave him sour wine. When we are compassionate, and we should be compassionate to those who don't think like us, to those who don't believe like us, to those who don't look like us, that is the call of the Christian, a disciple of Jesus Christ, to everyone, everywhere, at all times, and not expecting any turn, anything in return. Because our God, our Lord, did that for us. Willing to endure at that price. What is God saying to you, to me today? Can we start with our loved ones to be more compassionate? And then maybe we can move to our families, our community, our society. If not us, who? If not us, I'm talking to you this morning. I'm talking to me this morning. If we are not compassionate, then who will be compassionate in this world? If not the ones who follow the cross, who? Lord, forgive us. But Lord, lead us. Thank you. In Jesus' name.